Welcome to Sal on Air. I'm Ruth Dickey, Executive Director of Seattle Arts and Lectures. Sal on Air is a podcast of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 30 years of Seattle Arts and Lectures. Support for the inaugural season of Sal on Air comes from the M.J. Murdoch Charitable Trust. For more conversation and connection, join us for our 2018-19 season, featuring talks by Alice Walker, Barbara Kingsolver, Doris Kearns Goodwin, and more literary surprises. Tickets are available now at lectures.org. In this episode, we hear from Isabel Allende, who joined us at Benaroya Hall in November of 2017. I had the pleasure of being in conversation with Isabel Allende that night when she shared with us how she came to write her newest book, In the Midst of Winter, as well as her thoughts on love, loss, and healing. Isabel is introduced by Seattle Arts and Lectures visionary founder, Sherry Prouda. Here's an evening full of stories and laughter with Isabel Allende. Good evening, everyone. My name is Ruth Dickey. Good evening. Thank you. Thank you. I have the tremendous pleasure of serving as the executive director of Seattle Arts and Lectures, and I'm thrilled to welcome you to our 30th anniversary season and an evening with Isabel Allende. As you just heard through that lovely video, thanks to Brick Mayer for making it for us, we literally would not be here without you. And we're so grateful for all of you who've been part of our 30-year journey of reading and writing and listening and conversation. To let you know how much we particularly appreciate you subscribers, we've created a special 30th anniversary notebook just for you. If you've not already picked yours up, you can get it at our Sal info table after tonight's event. Subscribers at the Grand Patron, Patron, Founders Tier, and General Levels, please also pick up your copy of Isabel Allende's new book if you didn't get it on the way in. And finally, we hope that you'll join us after the event to continue the conversation at our new saloon after party by heading over to the Triple Door or Wild Ginger. Just show your ticket stub and you'll get 10% off your order and chat with friends old and new about tonight's event. Since last we were all together as a community of readers, there's something important for us to celebrate tonight. Seattle was recognized as a UNESCO World City of Literature. This is a testament to all of you and to our robust ecosystem for readers and writers. So I wanted to pause tonight to congratulate and celebrate the hard work of all the people who worked so hard to make that designation possible for our city. We're also so grateful to the many partners who've made this evening possible. Thanks to our presenting sponsor, the Seattle Times. Thanks to tonight's essay sponsor and our bookseller, University Bookstore. Thanks to our hotel sponsor, the Four Seasons Seattle, our reception sponsor, Woodenville Wine Country. Thanks to our organizational supporters, all of whom are listed in our program, and special thanks for significant support of our public programs to Four Culture, the Amazon Literary Partnership, Arts Fund, the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Glassy Baby, Nordstrom, and the Washington State Arts Commission. Speaking of Glassy Baby, thanks to them for lighting our stage this season with special 30th anniversary colors. Yeah. Um, 
We're especially excited about that beautiful blue color called Cabo. We like to call it Blue Sky Dreams. 10% of the sales of that glassy baby all year long will fuel our writers in the schools program so you can bring home your very own glow and help support wits. Uh, last but not nearly least, thanks to all of you for being here with us tonight. The format for this evening will be a conversation between Isabella Allende and me. After an initial conversation, I will include as many questions from all of you as possible. So if you have a question for Isabella Allende, please write it on a question card and pass it to an usher. Please note that there will not be a book signing this evening. If you are on social media this evening, our hashtag for tonight is Sal Allende. To officially open our evening, I'm proud to introduce a student from our Writers in the Schools program. This year, Writers in the Schools will work with 27 area schools and at Seattle Children's Hospital to match them with local, professional, creative writers for year-long residencies to inspire over 6,000 students to read and write their own poems, stories, and memoirs. Tonight's reader, Portia Isabella Polo, will be reading her poem, Cuando Estás Conmigo, which she wrote while working with WITS writer-in-residence, Evelyn Garcia at Puesta del Sol last year. Please join me in welcoming Portia. Cuando estás conmigo. Dulzura era una cosa que no tenía. Entonces, cuando abriste la puerta, estaba tan feliz. Tú haces brillar la habitación. Me traíste afuera de la tumba. Tú me enseñaste que el mundo puede ser precioso, pero el mundo es más precioso cuando estás conmigo. When you are with me. Sweetness was something I did not have. So when you opened the door, I was so happy. You make the room shine. You brought me out of the grave. You taught me that the world can be precious, but the world is more precious when you are with me. Isn't she wonderful? Thank you so much, Portia. We'll have copies of Portia's poem at our Sal Information Table, and you can find it on our blog. And now, to introduce Isabel Allende, we have a special honor tonight. 30 years ago, Sherry Prouda had a vision that Seattle was a city that deserved to have writers come to share their ideas and their stories and their process. After founding Literary Arts in Portland, she moved to Seattle and rallied a group of courageous and intrepid individuals to launch Seattle Arts and Lectures. Without her vision, tenacity, and leadership, none of us would be here tonight. Please join me in thanking and warmly welcoming Sal's extraordinary founder, Sherry Prouda. Thank you. I am delighted to be here in Seattle Arts and Lectures' 30th year. 
To the talented Ruth Dickey and her team, big thanks for seeing Seattle Arts and Lectures through its extended adolescence and ensuring that at the ripe age of 30, it was at the top of its game, doing what it does best, bringing the finest writers and thinkers to Seattle for adult and student audiences. As Portia illustrates, students too are profoundly affected by Seattle Arts and Lectures. Um, and these programs are done to feed our minds, open our hearts, and start conversations. And boy, we need that more than ever, right? But just because Seattle Arts and Lectures brings writers doesn't guarantee you will come, but you do. You fill a 2,800-seat hall to hear a writer talk. Back in 1990, following his Seattle Arts and Lectures appearance, the wonderful Wallace Stegner wrote to a letter to his editor commenting on this. Dear Sam, wrote Stegner, went up to Portland and Seattle last week and talked to thousands. My God, I was in lights like a rock star. <laughs> and we found two great bookstores, Powell's in Portland and Elliott Bay Books in Seattle. I have not sufficiently admired the Northwest. People there really read and take books seriously. Indeed, we do. Because we know words matter, facts matter, truth matters, ideas matter. <laughs> Journalism, science, and our democratic values matter. I'm so grateful to be part of a community that fills a hall for writers and thinkers. Thank you. <laughs> Tonight, we welcome Isabel Allende, author, humanitarian, recipient of the Presidential Medal of Freedom, and founder of the Isabel Allende Foundation to empower women and girls. Allende has said, I can promise you that women working together, linked, informed, and educated, can bring peace and prosperity to this forsaken planet. What better day, <laughs> what better day to welcome her here than on Mayor Jerkin's first official day in office? Seattle's first woman mayor in 90 years. <clears throat> Allende's voice is a powerful and vital one to many. She has authored over 20 books, from the House of the Spirits to her just published In the Midst of Winter, been translated into 35 languages, and has sold close to 70 million books worldwide. Her writing, often grounded in personal experience and historical events, pays homage to strong women, to the dispossessed and the oppressed. In her latest book, she writes of love and loss, of lives under a reign of terror, of harrowing escapes and harrowing survivals. She writes as she chooses to live, with passion and a belief in the curative power of love.
As one critic noted, Allende embraces the cause of humanity and does so with passion, with humor and wisdom that transcends politics. Her work asks us to ponder nuanced moral questions. Please join me in welcoming Isabel Allende. Thank you so much. So, such a wonderful welcome even before I start. Isn't that great to have a captive welcoming audience? This thing. It's such an honor to have your books Thank in the you. world and have you here with us tonight. I'd love to begin by talking about the new book, In the Midst of Winter. How did the idea for this book come to you? Oh, in a, in a brownstone in Brooklyn. I start all my books on a certain date on January 8th, and uh, not last year, but in 2015 for Christmas, I had rented a brownstone in Brooklyn to have the family and friends together, and somebody asked, what are you going to write in a couple of weeks? And I didn't really know. I said, well, by January 7th, I hope I will have some idea. <laughs> and so the, everybody started throwing ideas on the table, and one said, um, write about this house, this brownstone. Another one said, well, this used to be a, a neighborhood of the mafia. So uh, I was in school, she said, with, um, with what, the daughter of one of the mafiosos of the neighborhood, and one day they found a body in a trunk. I mean, any writer can write a book if you have a body in a trunk. Anybody can do that. <laughs> and, and so someone said, no, write about me. He's an, a professor, and an academic, and so forth. Everybody gave me some ideas. Mm. And I collected all of them, but I used only a few one, a few of them. But then, uh, when I started writing, I didn't really get the book together until there was a terrible uh, storm on January, in January last year in the state of New York. And it was a horrible blizzard, and the, the whole state was almost paralyzed for three days. Perfect for me, perfect. Because I had a, a quote by Albert Camus that I knew was going to be like the thread of the book. And the quote is, in the midst of winter, I finally found within me an invincible summer. And I was going through one of those emotional winters at that, at that time. And, I, and the quote reminded me that I had been in other winters before and there's always the invincible summer waiting. Just give it a chance. So my book was going to be about that, about people caught in a storm for three days with a body. Thank God we have the blizzard because the body's frozen. And I, <laughs> and I would have three days until it defrosts. And in those three days, I can write a lot. <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned the body. I didn't want to give too yeah, much away. Yeah, because it's not a crime novel. So mm -hmm. I had the body in page 20, and so the reader was expecting a crime novel, and it was very disappointing because that's not what the book is about. But it was a very easy solution. I just moved the body to page 100. <laughs> and, and so now by the time you get to the body, you are not expecting it at all. <laughs> Sorry that I'm giving away so much, but, but most of you won't even read the book, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> or you will forget, you'll forget. 
because there is this mystery of the body at the heart of the book, I wondered, does that change the writing process for you when there is a, a mystery? Well, I, I wrote a, a crime novel, only one, called Ripper. And uh, in that case, all, everything changed for me. Because it, that genre has certain requirements that I'm not used to. Mm. But in this case, it was just a body. It wasn't important. Uh, it's interesting because I found myself with a body in the trunk. And I thought, well, what am I going to do with the body? You, sooner or later, it will defrost. So uh, I, I emailed all my friends and, and acquaintances to ask what could I do with the body. Everybody answered. Everybody had an idea. And then I realized that everybody has thought about it, you know? Every, everybody has thought about killing somebody and not getting caught. And most people, when they think about that, it's a relative. They think of killing a relative. I'm, I'm not kidding, it's true. I got, and, and sometimes I would get an, a gruesome answer from a little old lady who plays bridge with my mother. I said, my mother is 97. So that gives you an idea of how our human mind works. What did you enjoy most about writing the this body. book? The <laughs> body. Well, I did enjoy the body, of course, but I also enjoyed the love story mm -hmm. because I'm an incurable romantic. So, uh, of course, I write about, in this case, it, the, everybody has mentioned, all the reviewers and, and every interviewer has mentioned the theme of immigration because it's very mm -hmm. prevalent in the book. Mm -hmm. But for me, it's a love story, mostly. Mm -hmm. And my, my characters are in their 60s, so it's mature love, as they call it. When we are old, they, nobody says old, they say mature, whatever that is. <laughs> Speaking of that, is a perfect segue, you write so movingly about love, and I know many of us loved your TED Talk about how to love and live vibrantly at any age. And I'd love to hear you talk about why do you think that's so important? Love? Yeah. I think it moves the world. Mm -hmm. I think love is the most important thing that can happen in the world. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm not talking only about romantic love. It's, it's the love for life, the love for... I mean, the bees love the color of the flowers. The, everything is moved by, by this instinct toward beauty and toward connection that love is. And in my long life, I'm 75, by the way. I know that from a distance I look good. Yeah. It takes a lot of money. <laughs> but. But in my long life, the only thing that, that matters, I have started from scratch so many times. I have been a political refugee. I have been an immigrant. I have two divorces. My daughter died. So many things have happened to me. And the only thing that remains with me, the only thing I remember really, is the love I have given. Not even the love I have received. Because sometimes I'm, I've not been able to receive the love. But the love that one gives, that's forever. It's the only thing you have. You have to stop clapping, okay? Because it's making me really nervous. 
it's a perfect segue. You have had such an interesting life and so much bravery and love. And I wonder what's given you the courage at so many different points to begin again. Most of the time, I did not have an alternative, another option. Sometimes uh, I think that we become strong when we are tested. We don't know the strength we have until we are tested. And then we realize that we have incredible resources inside that, that emerge when we need them. We, we don't know if we are, all of us, heroes or maybe villains. We don't know until we are tested. And in my life, I had had a lot of tragedy, but a lot of comedy also. And in every instance that I have been confronted with, with tragedy, somehow there was no other option. You, there was no escape. You, you have to confront it, you have to react. So it's, it, it's not about courage, it's often about just the way life is. And it happens to all of us. When did you first realize you wanted to be a writer? Never. <laughs> I, I, I never, you know, I, I was born in the 40s in a Catholic, conservative, patriarchal family where women were supposed to be mothers and, and wives. And I, was, I wasn't even encouraged to go to college or anything like that. And the, the models that, if I, I liked storytelling, but the models for writing were all male. The boom of Latin American literature were all male. And the only women were some British spinsters that had committed suicide. So, <laughs> so it wasn't something that I had, that I would have chosen for myself. Also, it would have been somehow arrogant to imagine that, that I had something to say that somebody would like to read. So it took me a long time. I wrote my first book at 40. And from that amazing, beautiful book, you've had such a long writing career across so many different types of stories, fiction, nonfiction, memoir. And I wonder how the, has that process changed for you over time? Well, my writing has changed, but the world has changed also. If I would try to publish The House of the Spirits today, nobody would publish it because that style, that kind of book, is no longer what people want to read. And the world is not like that anymore. Also, I think that my writing is affected by the fact that I have lived 30 years in this country in English. So I live in English, but inside, everything happens in Spanish. So fiction writing is always in Spanish. Uh, I cook in Spanish. I pray when I pray, which is not often. I count in Spanish. I make love in Spanish. I would feel ridiculous panting in English. Can you imagine? <laughs> so, yeah. So the, the, all the essential things happen in that in that inner realm, which is very chilly, and unfortunately. Is there a difference for you when you're writing fiction and nonfiction, and if so, how? I have written two very personal memoirs: Paula, when my daughter died and 10 years later, the sum of our days, because many people who had read Paula wanted to know what happened to the, to the people in the book, to Paula's husband, to Paula's brother, and so forth. Um, writing a memoir, and I promised my son I would never write another one, uh, is difficult because it's not only about me, it's about 
my tribe. And do I have the right to tell their stories? Maybe not. So the way I try to solve this is that I would show the manuscript to everybody that is mentioned in the book by name. And they would approve or not. Most people complained because there was not enough of them in the book. <laughs> uh, but it's always very iffy. There's a line there that is, you can very easily cross and get people angry. Um, I'd rather write fiction because in fiction I can say everything that is important to me. I talk about the issues that, are, that obsess me and the characters I choose speak for me. And, I, and it's, it's fiction, so no one can say anything, no one can complain. And so with the memoirs, when you showed it to people who were named, if they said, I don't like this, would you take it out and change? It depends. I would, I, my stepson of the, at the time um, had been using drugs since he was a kid. And f at the time when I was writing the book, he was clean. So I had written about this in the book, but he didn't want to appear as a drug addict in the book. And I, if, I, if, I, I, that was the person that he had been all his life until that moment. And to me, it was a story of redemption because he, he got clean, uh, but not to him. He didn't want to, me, me to write that. So I took him out of the book and he doesn't appear in the book. But I couldn't change. The, that was such an essential thing. And unfortunately, years later, he died of an overdose. So um, I understand, I, at, the, at the time, I totally understood and respected the fact that he didn't want to be portrayed like that. In that... Um... By, by the way, just one little thing. Sometimes people would say to me when I would show them the, the manuscript, it didn't happen that way. No, it didn't happen. Because we all perceive reality differently. We all can be in the same moment, in the same event, and we have a totally different version. But I write to my mother every single day, and I keep a copy of my letters, and my mother writes back to me every day. We email. And so by the end of the year, I have a box, a plastic box, with the letters of the year. Each box contains between 600 and 800 letters, and day by day. And this is stored in a storage room. So if somebody says, it didn't happen that, that Wait a minute, wait a minute. I go to the storage room, and which year did you say it was? 87? OK, 87. And I, I have it by day, what happened. So no one, no one can contradict me. It's, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful weapon. Yeah. We were talking a bit backstage about those letters and what an amazing resource. And I'm curious, letters also play an important role. House of the Spirits began as a letter. Both Paula and the Sum of Our Days began as letters. What do you think is so powerful about letters? I couldn't write a journal because I'm a communicator. I want to tell the story to somebody. And my mother is perfect because we've been doing this for decades. There's nothing in my mother's life or my life that the other person doesn't know. And it's totally confidential. So in a way, the letter helps me um, preserve the day. What I don't write, I will forget. And if I forgot it, it never happened. So my way of keeping record of my life is my letter to my mom. 
Thank God she's still alive, although she's, she should be dead, she's 97. Uh, but, but the fact that at my age I still have this woman that I can write to, correspond with her, and, and keep record of my life because she exists, is very important to me. And I know it's important for her too. We, we have a, an agreement though that no one will ever read those letters. If you would see what she writes about my stepfather, yeah, wow, nobody can read that. <laughs> I was telling Ruth that my mother once came to visit um, in California, she was 80 at the time, and she came to visit and she said, I would like to see a therapist. And she said, Mom, you're here for 15 days. Therapy is a long-term thing. It's not like going to the dentist. And my mother said, just, just once. I have never been in a therapist. So I talked to my therapist and I said, Larry, can you have a session with my mom? And he said, what, what language? And I said, my mother thinks she speaks English, so just bear with her. <laughs> so uh, then they, had, they went for an hour into a room in the house. I was terribly curious, but I couldn't even ask. And then when they came out, my mother said, I allowed, I allowed him to tell you what we talked about. So as soon as I could catch Larry, I said, what did you talk with my mother? And he said, she's the strangest patient I've ever had. <laughs> she came directly to the point. She said, hello, my name is Panchita, and I want to be a widow. <laughs> <laughs> that was the opening line of the therapy. <laughs> so I said, what, what did you tell her? I told her that she didn't need therapy. <laughs> She was so clear about what she wanted. <laughs> well, my stepfather is still alive. He's 101. <laughs> These guys are immortal. It's just awful. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking about love and loss, um, one of the... <laughs> Speaking about what? Love and loss. Um, one of the things that you write so beautifully about is grief across many of your books, your own grief and your characters' griefs. What do you feel transforms or lightens grief? Telling. I think that when we go through, some, through a horrible loss, like when I lost my, my daughter, we tend to go inside and we close down. And that's the worst thing we can do. What really helps is when we start sharing it with other people. And then we get the love that people are willing to give you. And, and everybody has a loss in their lives. And, and they're willing to share it as well. And so that changed, changed everything for me. After Paula died and after I wrote the book, I was supposed to go in a book tour. And I, I, I was dreading it. And I said to my son, Nico, I just cannot do this. I can't go to 20 cities talking about Paula's death. And Nico said, Mom, this is not a book tour. This is spiritual practice. Just go there and open your heart. And in every single event where I went and I talked about it, I cried and the audience cried because everybody has shared, could share something. We've all gone through some moments in our lives that are painful, very painful. So sharing is, and telling the stories is what helps me. And it also helps me to seduce men, you know? <laughs> it's not at my age, of course, but, but when I was younger, 
And, and I, at the time I was tall and blonde. So, <clears throat> <clears throat> so if you, if, you, if you sit in front of a guy and you say with, with intense interest, tell me your story. Every single guy will think that you are really attractive. <laughs> because you are listening. Yeah. It's perfect to pick up yeah. lines. <laughs> it didn't work now in this decade of my life. It doesn't work that well. <laughs> what are you laughing at? Over there, somebody. <laughs> Speaking of Paula, I'd love to hear you talk some about the Isabella Allende Foundation, which is such an amazing way to honor her. How did it begin and how has it grown? Well, after I wrote the book, I, I wasn't planning to publish it, but my agent, the family, everybody said, this is an important book you have to publish. Many people will relate to this. So the book was published and it became very successful. Uh, I, I got thousands of letters. It was before email, so you would get letters, real letters. I have boxes of letters, to the point that some publishers published the letters, which were way better than the book. <laughs> and um, I didn't want to touch any income that came from that, from that book because I didn't want to benefit in any way from what had happened. So I put that aside in another account, thinking one day I will do something to honor my daughter. And um, I didn't know what that could be. I was grieving, I was in a writer's block, I couldn't write. And my husband then and a friend said uh, that I needed to get out of my comfort zone. So they took me to India. And we did a trip in India that was wonderful because you get to see a lot of poverty but a lot of beauty also. What you bring back is the beauty. Yeah, but we had rented a car with a driver and we were going through some rural areas in Rajasthan and the car got very hot and so the driver said that he had to cool the engine. He stopped and in the middle of nowhere there was nothing there. But at a certain distance there was an acacia tree and some women under the tree. So my friend, Tabra and I, we walked toward the women while the engine was cooling and there were like six women with children and they were not dressed in those bright, beautiful colors that you always see in India, even in the poorest regions. They were in dark clothes. And uh, they, we had bought some bracelets in a market. And um, they, they touched my friend's hair because she, she dyed it really bright red. And they would touch us because in many countries, you don't have that distance that we have here that you don't approach people very much and you always speak at a certain distance. That's not the case in India. So the women really, we, we didn't have a common language, but we started touching each other and then we gave them the bracelets and there were bracelets for everybody. And then it was time to go. And so the, the driver honked and we started walking toward the car. And then one of the women came running to me and she touched me on the shoulder and gave me a little parcel. And it was like rags. And I thought she was trying to give me something back for the, for the bracelets. So I said, um, no, no, it doesn't matter, thank you. I'll try to give it back and she wouldn't take it. So I opened these rags and there was a newborn baby inside. And it, it, was, it must have been born the day before. It had the umbilical cord, it, it smelled of blood and feces and, and ash and earth. 
and tiny, tiny. So I kissed the baby, blessed the baby, and gave, gave it back, and she wouldn't take the baby. In that moment, the driver came running, and he picked up the baby, gave it to the mother, picked me up, and pushed me in, inside the car. And when we were driving away, I reacted late. And I said, why, why would she want to give me her baby? And the driver said, it was a girl who wants a girl. And that was the moment when I realized that what the mission, my mission would be. I couldn't do anything for that girl, and I don't know if that girl, this was 20 years ago, if that girl lived or not, and what kind of life she had. But I decided that I would create a foundation with my income um, to help girls like her, to empower women so that they wouldn't have to give away their babies. And that's what the foundation has been doing. Mm. <clears throat> That's beautiful. How has the foundation grown over time? Well, uh, the foundation was a mess at the beginning because I know nothing about philanthropy. So I was just writing checks. And then I have to go back a little bit. Um, I have my son. After my daughter died, I have only one son, Nicolas. And Nicolas married very young to a, a, a woman that had three, they, they had together, they were married for four or five years and they had three babies. And then when she gave birth to the third baby, she found out that she was gay. She fell in love with my stepson's fiance. Well, her wedding dress was waiting in my closet. So they had a wedding date when they, can you imagine it broke the family completely. And my son was left with three babies in diapers. Of course, the mother was present, but she was, the whole thing was just a mess at the beginning. Then later, we sort of organized our lives. But at the beginning, it was a mess. So after a year of this, I said to my son, Nico, I have been watching you, and you just take care of the kids, and you go to work. But you're not dating anybody. You don't have any fun. You eat junk. You don't exercise. This is not a life for a young man. I said, mother, I have three kids. I have to take care of the kids. You don't expect me to be dating. Who would be dating me with three kids in diapers? I said, yeah, well, he's right about that. <laughs> so, so I remember India. And I decided that what he needed was an arranged marriage. <laughs> Which is, I mean, you laugh, but it's not the norm here. But what, any mother would do the same thing, look for a bride. <laughs> Any Latin mother would do that. <laughs> so um, I started looking. It's not easy, because people I know are my age, or their children are too young. So, I, for example, I would be signing books, and there would be a line, and I would look in the line to see if there was someone in the line that Nico might like. He's very particular about women. He likes them older to begin with. So. If there was someone, I would ask for the telephone number. But it, it never worked because Nico didn't follow through. So um, finally, I did find someone. Someone introduced me to someone that I liked. And I thought I need to test her before I introduce her to my son because she's going to be the stepmother of my grandchildren, maybe. So I invited her to a trip to the Amazon. Now, I, had to, I had to write. 
Well, I had to write uh, something for National Geographic, I think it was, so I was going with a photographer and a team. So I said, okay, let's get this woman in, and I mean, the, the Amazon can really test you. So I thought, if she survives the Amazon, she will probably be able to deal with the kids. And so she did survive the Amazon, and actually not in the Amazon, but in Rio, in Rio we saw a murder. Someone was, was shot three times in the head in the street where we were. And she got really nervous, but didn't become hysterical. So I thought, okay, it's fine. She can be, I mean, you can be nervous with something like that, so it's, it's fine. And then I, I decided to introduce her to my son because I was also looking for someone to run the foundation. So I was thinking, I need someone who can be the stepmother of my grandkids, who can be the wife of my son, and run the foundation. So it was a lot of requirements. But she sort of fit the, the, the profile that I needed. So I invited her for dinner, and then I realized that she was vegan. I didn't know what vegan was. I thought that it was some contagious illness, and, and I had never heard the word vegan. What's vegan? And, and, so, but the, and you, at the time, you couldn't Google things. So it was not a matter of Googling vegan and getting the, the information. I started asking around. I went to my doctor, and I said, you know, I have this woman. It's really interesting. I, I think she would be wonderful for Nico, but she has this condition. She's, she's vegan. <laughs> and so... <laughs> And so she explained what vegan was. It's not easy to cook for a vegan person in my family. So, but she, um, she met my son. They didn't even look at each other during the dinner. But two months later, they were living together. And they have been married ever since. So arranged marriages work fine. <laughs> fine. And she runs the foundation. She runs it like a ship. Perfect. Such a great story. Um, before I ask the next question, um, Lori doesn't like me to tell the story, but right now she's in surgery. She had a problem, so she didn't come with me. She always is with me, so I'm never free to talk like this <laughs> because she's there. She's always there waiting and ready to scold me if I say something that I shouldn't say. But right now, unfortunately, we, we did the whole book tour together. We are always traveling together. And she got a lump in her throat, and she's going to have surgery. So, unfortunately, she has that. Unfortunately, she's not here tonight. <laughs> Perfect segue for my next question. But before I ask it, um, if you all have questions for Isabella and I, please write them on cards and pass them to ushers so they can get collected. Um, so the next question is about advice. And I love when advice shows up in your work, like in the sum of our days, the advice that your Tia Ramon gave you about living. And I wondered, what's the best advice that you've been given? I don't remember given? what I wrote. Um, you wrote that the best advice, or his advice was a selective memory for remembering the good things, prudence to avoid doing anything to ruin the present, and a defiant optimism for facing the That's future. That's my stepfather. Yeah. yeah. I wondered what other advice has been precious to you? Well, I received advice from my grandfather when I was growing up as a child that served me well for 70 years, and now I don't need it anymore, and I want to get rid of that advice. But, but I can't, because I have his voice in me, like, like, like a drill sergeant, you know, there always. And the advice was, don't complain, 
don't whine, don't expect anything from anybody, take care of yourself, take care of others, serve, be honest, be honorable. Why? I mean, it's boring. <laughs> now I want to whine, I want someone to take care of me, I want to be dependent. I, I don't want to be this person that my grandfather created. And I say that it served me well because I have had a hard life and not whining is a good thing. But now I want to whine. Yeah, and I might be able to. I found a man, a sweetheart, that might, might bear my new whining thing. <laughs> Talking about advice. The best advice I ever heard was from Sophia Loren. Uh, we were in the green room in the Olympics. And by the way, this woman who looks so spectacular even today when she's 80, at the time she was like 74, and uh, she looked fantastic. She's slim, she's not this voluptuous, overweight Italian lady. No, she's very slim and elegant. And she was eating carbohydrates all the time, pretzels and bananas and stuff that I wouldn't even touch with, with a finger. And um, I, I couldn't help myself and I said, how do you do it? You, you look so fabulous. And she said, I sit straight, posture, and I don't make old people's noises. So, ah! <laughs> None of that. <laughs> So remember, remember, that's the secret of youth, eternal youth, posture and no noises. <laughs> how about writing advice? What's how the, about what? How about writing advice? Writing advice? Yeah. Well, writing is like, like everything else. It needs effort and discipline. Mm -hmm. People think that they can sit down and write the great American novel in one sitting. It doesn't happen that way. I think that I have tried to teach writing a couple of times. They have hired me for some reason. And um, I have, let's say, 20 students. And I can teach them how to write, but I cannot teach them how to tell a story. It's like people who have the, the ability, the virtue to tell a joke. Some, you can, I know the joke, but if I tell the joke, nobody laughs. And some people have the... The, the suspense, the tension, the rhythm for the joke, or they have an ear for music. I think you are born with that. And I think that storytelling is something that you are born with, like an ear for music. So t teaching to write, I always would, would say to the students, this is like training for sports. You train and train and train, and nobody cares how much effort you put in that. They only care about the performance. So it's the same with writing. You, it's a thousand drafts for a good page. And you have to do it, and nobody cares how much effort you have. I've read you say that some of the best writing happening today is happening for television. And I wondered if you still believe that, and if so, what shows you enjoy? Well, I think that not only it's happening because we are writing for movies and television, because everything has become very visual today. But, but also because the industry picks up the best books and transform, the best stories and puts them on, on the screen. So uh, the, the, the borderline between literature and, and the visual arts is now very blurred. Mm. It's become very integrated. 
which in a good way, it, I mean, it could be very good, but the contracts are so draconian that I don't sign a contract with Hollywood anymore. Mm -hmm. I did two movies and, and now the, the contracts have changed. So they want, first of all, no termination. So you sell the option forever. You sell it for the technology that exists and the technology that will be invented for the universe, whatever the universe is. Mm -hmm. And the, then also you have to sell the copyright of your characters. So if, you, if I want to write a sequel, let's say, of the House of the Spirits, I, ha I would have to pay a royalty for my characters. Mm. I cannot sign that kind of contract. Mm. But television is much better. In television, you still can do things. Mm -hmm. Any things you particularly enjoy watching? I don't watch a lot of television huh? because I read a lot and I yeah. write a lot. Mm -hmm. So I don't have much time for television. But recently, I was in a telenovela. I was in Jane the Virgin. And <laughs> they, they asked me to do a cameo appearance in Jane the Virgin, so I watched 70 chap uh, episodes to, to know what the story was about. And probably most of you, at least the Americans, have no idea what that is. But all the Latinos know what Jane the Virgin is about. And the premise is delicious. The, pr the premise is that this girl has promised, they are all Latinos in Miami. And they, they come from Venezuela. And so the, the, the girl has promised her grandmother that she will be a virgin until she gets married. And so she, she makes out with a the, with the boyfriend in the back of the car. I mean, it's disgusting, but they don't have intercourse because she has promised the grandmother. And then one day she goes to the gynecologist who happens to be a drunk. And she, instead of doing a pap smear with her, she mixes the, the, the papers and inseminates her with somebody's sperm. And so we have a virgin who is pregnant. And she works in a Catholic school with nuns. And the nuns think that it's the Holy Spirit. And, and she just says, no, 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 it's a drunk gynecologist. No, it's not the Holy Spirit. Ah, but the Holy Spirit guided the hand of the, of the gynecologist. So they start selling this little stamps with Jane the Virgin and people come and they, well, it's very funny. The whole thing is really funny and tongue-in-cheek. And so I was really honored to, to have an appearance there. But when I saw myself on the screen, I hated it. Hated it. The, connected with that, you have such strong women characters and celebrate so much about the importance of women's courage and voices. What do you think is particularly important about women's leadership? Numbers. Mm -hmm. Critical numbers. Mm -hmm. We need critical number of women in the management of the world. Mm -hmm. We have great women leaders, great women doing great stuff, but not at the critical number that will tip the balance of power. Perfect segue to the first question from the audience. What would be your advice for young women, especially young women of color, to persist and thrive in today's volatile political environment? Be connected to other women. Be connected, because I think that, large, that, that women who, who can work in a community, who can work in a team, are so much more powerful than when you try to do things alone. I don't think that I would be here sitting today if I had not had the help of so many women. First of all, to raise my kids. 
I, I could work because I had a mother-in-law and I had an adopted grandmother and people who helped me. And all along my life, I have seen the support of other people in general, but mostly women. Will you continue to write letters to your mother after she's gone? I have thought about that, yeah. and I don't know. I think that I will be... Um, it, it will, when I think about it now, it seems very artificial, but maybe the need to communicate with her will be so great that I will do it secretly so that nobody thinks that I'm crazy. <laughs> the next question from the audience is, what is the appropriate occasion to wear a Presidential Medal of Freedom? You know, I, I don't wear it. Some, uh, it, it. Right now it's in a museum in Sacramento for some reason. But it, it would be nice to wear it, yeah. When you come back to Sal. I will. Back. Next time I come here, I'll wear it. Wonderful. I should, it's, not, it's not very fashionable, though. I mean, it would ruin any dress. Have you noticed when Queen Elizabeth has those gowns, and, and then she has this thing hanging here with metal? It looks terrible. I mean, <laughs> terrible. What's been your favorite book to write, and why? I would love to write an erotic book, but my mother is alive. I can't. <laughs> <clears throat> I mean, if you had a mother like mine, you wouldn't either. This you know, my mother, when she reads a, a, an erotic scene in my books, I see her frowning, no? And then she says, people will think that you've done it. <laughs> and most of the time I have. Is your mom an early reader of your books? Does she read them? My up? mother never likes my books until she reads the reviews, and then she, she changes her mind. But I, I have her letters, so I know that she didn't like it in the beginning. She says, I never said that. I said, you want to see the letter? <laughs> letters, a gift and a curse. Mm -hmm. um, how do you feel about the current political climate as a Latina in the United States? Terrible. How would I feel I can be deported tomorrow? No, I feel terrible. I think that and it's not only being, being a Latina. I think that we are living in a climate of separation, exclusion, hatred. Um, it, I don't recognize the country, and, and it makes me really very sad. I never believed in the American dream. I think that's an illusion, a fantasy. But we were a country that we, we were working together, and a country that was going somewhere. And now I feel that we are stuck in, in, in a situation in which there's so much division, we don't talk to the other, to people who don't think like us. So there's no communication. We don't, we, we see them as enemies. And I think that that is terrible for the country. And as a Latina, of course, I work with Latinos, I work with immigrants and with refugees. That's part of what my foundation does. And in the book, I have the case of Evelyn Ortega, an undocumented Guatemalan young woman and um, I didn't have to make up that story. That story is one of the stories in my foundation. So because I know the plight of these people, and, and I say these people because it's, they are my people, but I am not in that situation. I'm a very privileged immigrant. I know how hard it is when you, you don't dare send your kids to school because you think that you might be deported and never see them again. 
So it, it's very hard, very, very hard. Did you know when you began in the midst of winter that you would include a story like Evelyn's? When I began the book, yes, because we had it, we had it at that moment in the foundation. And my daughter-in-law, when we were giving ideas to the book, she said, you have to write about refugees. Because that, the last three years, that had been the theme of my foundation. A follow-up question from an audience member who'd like to know, can you explain why House of the Spirits would not be popular today? This person says that she misses that kind of writing in today's books. How old is the person who asked the question? <laughs> really, because, because it, it, it's a generational thing also. Huh? Not old? Then you are a foreigner, some may, maybe. <laughs> you must be from Romania or some place like that. Brazil, you see, foreigner. Uh, <laughs> well, what happens is that in Latin America, also literature has changed because the world has changed. And so the issues that we write about are different now. And in, in the House of the Spirits, for example, there is a lot of magic realism, which is a form of, it's a metaphor for other things. Um, it, it doesn't work today because, because people are used to a more direct communication, more, um, more visual, more contemporary in a way. And, and these long family sagas, they work for telenovelas, but they don't work in literature anymore. So I don't think the House of the Spirits today, I mean, to, people are reading it today because it's required reading in some schools. But, but if it was published today, I don't know. I have never been able to read it. Well, I don't read my books because I know the ending, but, but I don't think I could read The House of the Spirits or Paula or any of the books from the past. This person would like to know how much of yourself do you put into your protagonists? I think that I have heard that the author is always in every character and is always between the lines. Why do you write that story and no other story? Why they have to be those characters and no other characters? The story is because you're, you care for. It's an issues that you care for. And the characters speak for me. So, so it's very, very personal. When you write the kind of books I write, because <clears throat> there are genre books like romance novels or, or crime novels in which the author might not be there. I, I go every year to the Mystery Writers Conference in Book Passage, where, the bookstore where I live, and the, the mystery writers, the aspiring mystery writers that come are little old ladies, most of them. They are not these tough guys that are portrayed in the book, so the author is not necessarily in that genre. But in the books I write, it's always about me and, and, or about the author. And in this book, for example, they are all the themes that, that I care for in this moment. I could not have written this book 10 years ago. But as I said, the, the book starts with a quote by Albert Camus that says, in the midst of winter, I finally found in me an invincible summer. And that, that idea of the, of the winter of our lives and the, and the winter of love also. I didn't have it 10 years ago. I needed to go through a lot of losses and be in my own winter to get there. So that's what I write about, what 
is happening to me in the moment or what I care for in the moment. Do you write your books with an intention for them to be read out loud? No, but, but actually they are because there's the audiobooks now in English. But, mm-hmm. oh, but I heard this, this just happened in the book tour. Um, we were in, where was it? I think it was Boston. And a person came with her husband in a wheelchair connected to a respirator. They had to plug the, the whole thing. In the, so the first call to save the venue had a plug where they could put him because he needed this thing to breathe. And he absolutely wanted to come. So they came in a van and it was a production to get him there. And, um, and so he attended the event and I said hello and whatever. And then I got a letter 20 days later, a letter from the wife, and she said that she read my book in the midst of winter aloud to him, and that was the last thing they shared. And he, he died. He had ALS, and he, um, it took him a very long time to die, but the last thing was her reading the book aloud. So I thought, well, sometimes you can read something aloud and, and connect that way. What is your favorite word and why? Love, for obvious reasons. Mm. And chocolate also for obvious reasons. (laughs) And dog also for obvious reasons. Mm. Can you comment on any similarities that you perceive between the US in 2017 and Chile in 1973 or earlier? Well, it's, it's, it's a difficult question because at such different countries and different times, what happened in Chile was in the, in the middle of the Cold War, when uh, the world was divided in two hemispheres. One was the, the, the influence of the Soviet Union, and the other the influence of the United States. The CIA was very active in the world, demolishing democracies and replacing them by dictatorships in the name of freedom. And um, Chile was, was one of those cases. And so what happened was that we elected a socialist president that represented a coalition of parties of the center and the left. And immediately the CIA and the forces of the right in the country um, sabotaged the government and eventually provoked a military coup that ended that government and ended a long tradition of democracy in my country. It's not the same case with the United States, however, When this happened in Chile, my biggest question, my great surprise, was that in this renowned democracy that Chile was, in 24 hours, the country changed completely. It turned around completely. And in 24 hours, you had concentration camps in different places in the country. You had torture centers everywhere. People were arrested and disappeared. Torture became the norm. And this fascist thing that emerged, where were they that we failed to see them? Where were these people? They were always there. And they are always there in every society. In everywhere in the world, you have that kind of element that can take over given the wrong circumstances. So I think that we value democracy when we lose it. It's like health. We don't worry about our health until we lose it. And now that we have democracy in Chile, after all we went through, we protect it. 
we, we are very careful with our democracy. So I don't, I don't think we should take anything for granted. The next question is from the librarians, and they'd like to know, what are you currently reading? I read a lot of stuff. In, in this trip, I have read uh, books that I had not been able to read before because I was too busy. For example, The Orphan Train, that I should have read it before. I, I'm reading books by uh, Luis Alberto Urrea, who is a Mexican-American writer that writes about the border. I should have read his books before I wrote mine. I just finished a beautiful book called um, we, are called to we Are Called to Rise by Laura McBride. If you have a chance to read it, you'll love it. It's the kind of book that, that leaves you thinking for many days. A question from the audience. What is one thing that you think people should do every day when they're 10, when they're 50, and when they're 100? Well, first of all, brush your teeth. <laughs> and, but... I don't know, do something for somebody every day. That, that makes you happy. You know, I was reading an article about what what happiness is all about, what makes, first of all, what are the most happy countries in the world? And they happen to be Denmark, Singapore, and Costa Rica. And why these three countries have national health care for everybody, national education free for everybody. They don't have a military force. They don't spend in the military. They spend in, social, in the social network for people. Um, and the, the, the ways that they are happy are very different because in Singapore people are very driven towards success. But they have all the infrastructure that supports them. In Denmark, they have a lot of free time and they are safe. From the moment they are conceived until their death, they feel safe. And that seems to be very important. And in Costa Rica, any excuse is good for dancing. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think that, that what makes people happy, is, and this is part of what, what I read, having a sense of purpose, that your life has meaning, that, that you're not just going through the motions every day, you really have a purpose. To be in a community helps, and the community could be a family, but the idea is that you are not isolated, that you belong in a human group. We are pack animals, and when we are not in the pack, we are really lonely and unhappy. So I think that those two things are really important. What projects will be next for you? Well, I have a sweetheart. And I'm sort of panicky right now because he's coming to live with me. Yeah. Let, let me tell you the story. I was doubting because a couple of friends of his are here, so I, you just don't repeat a word, okay? Uh, what happened was that this man called Roger, he's a widower, and his wife died four years ago, and he was living in the same house with the same stuff, the same life that he had with her, but alone. 
He heard me on NPR. He was driving to Boston and heard me on NPR and didn't like what I had to say. So he emailed my office and my assistant answered because we had a lot of emails. And then the next day he emailed again. So I, I answered the second time. And from then on, he started writing to me every morning and every evening to say good morning and to wish me a happy day and then good evening and a photograph of the moon or the flowers in his garden or whatever. This went on for five months. We never talked, we never saw each other until I had to go to New York for a gala of the Center for Reproductive Rights and then I invited him to the gala. And the next day he invited me out for lunch. And so I said, we had a, a main course that we sort of shared, some ravioli. And I said, um, look, what are your intentions? <laughs> because I'm 74 years old, I don't have any time to waste. <laughs> now, I realized that if he had said that to me, I would have run the other way. <laughs> but he choked on the ravioli, but very bravely said, my intentions are very serious. <laughs> so, <laughs> this was in October last year. So in the meantime, we have FaceTime a lot, we have visited a lot, and now he sold the house, he got rid of everything he has, and he's moving with a bike and his clothes to my house. Now, I live in a cottage with one bedroom. I live alone with my dog, so let's see how we are going to manage it. And he said, it better work, because I'll be homeless if it doesn't. <laughs> so. <laughs> So we are going to make an effort, both of us. I'm not easy. I know that I'm not easy. And now that I'm whining, I'm even more difficult. Yeah. We, we probably have time for one more question. And so I'd love to know, you write about the brutality of the dictatorship in Chile and about the plight of migrants and addiction and violence against women and loss and death and grief and all those heavy topics in your work and amidst so much sadness that you navigate in those fictional worlds and in your personal life, you also have so much joy. And I wondered what gives you hope amidst that? Everything gives me hope and, and my books are not depressing. I mean, all those stories are there, but, but there is humor and, and people survive. I'm interested in, in, in the stories of people who have the courage to confront the world and confront the problems and survive and become stronger because of that. Those are my stories because I meet those people all the time. Through my foundation, I meet people that you wouldn't believe the ordeals they have gone through. I had a TED talk some time ago, and, and, one, and in that TED talk I mentioned a story of, this is one of the organizations that my foundation has been supporting from the very beginning. I met this young kid who was just out of college, that he went to Congo because he was doing some kind of stuff, a thesis or something. He ended up saving refugees in a death camp in Congo. And among the people he was able to save, he chartered a plane and filled it up with these people who were condemned to death, really. Among them, a woman called Rose Mapendo. Mapendo means great love in Swahili. And this woman, they had killed her husband. They had wounded her oldest child. She had nine children. 
and she walked all the way from Rwanda to Congo, where she was placed in this concentration camp that was really a death camp. They were starving to death. And there she gave birth to premature twins. She put them in a tomato bag and was carrying them like a kangaroo against her skin so that they would survive. And this is a woman that was rescued by my friend Sasha. And um, at the time, Sasha didn't have an organization of any kind. Today, if you Google Refuge Point, you will hear many of these stories. And maybe you can help him. Because he, the work he has done, he has saved thousands and thousands of refugees in the world. This kid. And the story of Rose Mapendo is a story of survival, of a woman who survives with her nine kids and eventually ends up in the United States, in New Mexico, I think she was. She didn't speak a word of the language, but she could sing. And she would go with Sasha and sing her story. And all her kids survive. The, the, kid that, the oldest kid became a football player. They are all doing well. And those are the stories that I'm interested in. The people who, in spite of everything that has happened, they have been raped, they have been beaten up. The husband was m killed with a machete in front of her and her kids. And she's strong, and she's capable of dancing and singing, and she has joy inside. So why wouldn't I have joy? Nothing has happened to me that serious. So I feel that, that there is all kinds of reasons to be very joyful about everything that happens. And right now, I feel that in, in this country, we are living a time of depression in which both sides feel depressed because they, they feel that there is no connection. We are in a long political winter. That has, it's not only Trump, it's been, it's been coming along for some time. But there are so many reasons to be joyful about and to be hopeful. Governments pass and people stay. So I'm joyful about that. We stay. Thank you. I know that. I know that I speak for all of us, and when I say that, we are all so grateful for your stories. Thank you so much Thank for sharing you. them with us. That was Isabella Allende at Seattle Arts and Lectures in November 2017. This was Sal On Air, a podcast featuring some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 30 years of Seattle Arts and Lectures. Support for the inaugural season of Sal On Air comes from the MJ Murdoch Charitable Trust. To hear more from Sal On Air, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more conversation and connection, join us for our 2018-19 season, featuring talks by Alice Walker, Barbara Kingsolver, Doris Kearns Goodwin, and more literary surprises. Tickets are available now at lectures.org. Our show is produced by Jack Straw Cultural Center. Special thanks to the Seattle Arts and Lectures staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to Daniel Spills for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Ruth Dickey, and this has been another edition of Sal on Air from Seattle Arts and Lectures.